I'm really glad uh, to see you guys this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, pray as we're uh, concluding uh, this series on contrast uh, and getting ready to, to pick up uh, Easter Sunday, a new series that's uh, going to help us to see kind of, a, I hope, a complete picture of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you uh, for the morning. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, and I just pray that um, uh, we would see uh, every word that you want us to see and that I would be out of your way this morning and uh, your word uh, would speak to the, to the heart and mind of every person here. Uh, we, we know it's going to happen and we know it's true because your word always does that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let me ask you, uh, what are your Easter preparations? Maybe, uh, hopefully this morning was not news to you that Easter is next Sunday. Uh, but if it is, I'm sorry that now I've distracted you for the entire morning. But what are uh, some of your Easter uh, preparations? Maybe uh, some of your preparations, if you've got kids or grandkids, are a little bit like ours, that sometime around February, March, somewhere in there, we start figuring out like Easter finery, clothes, that sort of thing. Uh, getting our daughter a new dress, uh, getting our son a new t-shirt, um, yeah, Easter best, right? And he found a t-shirt that he just loves for Easter, you'll, you'll, you'll see it next Sunday. So we start kind of shopping for that stuff, looking at pastels, looking at that sort, sort of thing. Maybe for you, um, it's doing the Easter basket thing for your kids and trying to figure out what you're going to put in there, and uh, we kind of have our strategies with that, a, a preacher a uh, guy that I know always used to make a joke about when he was a kid, uh, the Easter baskets would be out, and he'd go and he'd grab the Easter bunny, and he was so excited, and then he'd see that his parents had bought him a hollow chocolate Easter bunny, and they could see he was disappointed, and his dad, the preacher, would say, it's empty, just like the tomb was. So, right, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, maybe for you it's decorating. Do we have people that dye eggs? Do you guys like doing that? All right, not very many, all right. So uh, some people dye eggs or have Easter decorations, that, that sort of thing. And maybe for you it's spiritual, and it's just kind of working through. Uh, beginning today, you're going to kind of read each day about the last week of Jesus before he went to the cross. Uh, you'll read uh, today about Palm Sunday, uh, about how Jesus entered Jerusalem uh, for, for that final week. He entered Jerusalem and was going to begin his final kind of week of ministry uh, before the cross. And the crowds were there waving palm branches and saying Hosanna in the highest and worshiping his name. Uh, and maybe today, later today, you'll read a passage about that. Or Holy Monday, where Jesus is said to have uh, driven out the money changers uh, out of the temple. And uh, he said, you know, this is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. And he kind of drove those people out of the temple area. And on Tuesday, you'll read about how Jesus condemned the religious authority of the city. And it was really on Tuesday that the religious leaders made the decision that they were going to plot to kill Jesus. And you'll read some passages about that. Or Wednesday, which is kind of considered Spy Wednesday. It's the day that is believed that Judas met with the religious leaders to betray Jesus with 30 pieces of silver. Uh, Monday, Thursday, which is the day that Jesus had the Last Supper, and then Good Friday, which we'll have our service here at 7 p.m., uh, we'll re remember uh, the day that Jesus was crucified, and we'll, uh, again, have a service at 7 p.m. on that day uh, um, to remember that. And so I want to pause there just for a minute, because in our contrast series, I want to read to you kind of a lengthy passage of Scripture, if you'll allow me, but I want us to just kind of be in that moment just for a minute. 
I want to read the story of the cross and the crucifixion and just allow ourselves to sit there for a minute because we're going to see two responses to Jesus that couldn't be more different. All right? So here it is. Here's Luke's account of it. As the soldiers led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Zion, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when they will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out to, with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. They said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since we are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you will be with me. Today, you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So I want you to see, first of all, that this is a story that we just read about Jesus and his grace. It's seen all over the story, and throughout his life and his ministry, we have seen these moments of grace when it comes to Jesus. Forgiving people's sins, that's a moment of grace. Healing their diseases, <clears throat> excuse me, that's a moment of grace. Leading them to new life, that is a moment of grace. Jesus lived a life of grace. But this story, the story of the cross, it has got to be, as one sportscaster used to say, it has got to be the granddaddy of them all, right? The granddaddy of them all. This moment when he went to the cross, to Calvary, and he absorbed your sin and mine, the sins of the entire world, so that we could know and worship and follow God in this life and in the next. This is the granddaddy. This is the moment of grace. Now, it is also a story about response. I love the, the, the contrast between these two thieves. It's just fascinating to me. Because one thief is angered. Right? He says to Jesus, save yourself and us, by the way. 
And the anger isn't about his grace. No one really gets angry about grace. Sometimes we'll get angry about grace given to other people, but not many people get angry about grace. The anger is about his power. That Jesus, it seems, is refusing to deliver them from their hardship. You might see this sometimes with your kids. I think my kids know that I love them. Uh, They don't get angry about the way that I love them. They get angry about the way I use my power. The power of the remote control. It's been March Madness. There has been a lot of college basketball on at my house. They, they, They get angry about the way I use my power with the remote control. The power of the wallet. What I choose to purchase and buy. The power of the device. Right? And when they're allowed screen time. They know I love them. I think they would affirm that I love them. They get angry about the way Cheryl and I, the way we use our parental, almighty, from God, power. I think that some people are uncertain about God's love for them. They were just never taught that aspect of of God. But I think a lot of people know in their heart of hearts that God loves them. Their problem with God is not his grace. Their power with God is the way he did or did not use his power. God, I thought you'd heal my loved one by now. God, I thought you would have brought me a spouse by now. God, I thought you'd have brought me a job by now. God didn't use his power the way they thought he'd use his power, and it's caused them to struggle with anger. This week in particular, Holy Week, leading up to Easter, I hope that this week in particular, we can just kind of marvel at the ways that God did use his power. He used his power to set a perfect example for us. He used his power to forgive our sins. He used his power to be raised from the dead. He used his power to give us the Holy Spirit. He is good. And what he's done is good. And sometimes we miss what he's done because he didn't do what we wanted in some other area. I told you this, excuse me, I told you this story before, but several years ago, Cheryl and I were celebrating our anniversary in the Smoky Mountains, and we had gone uh, down the mountain to do some things, and Um, Late afternoon, early evening, we were traveling back up the mountain, and about halfway up the mountain, we were hit with blinding fog. It is the most terrifying driving situation I've ever had or since, um, or or had since. It it was just terrifying, because you couldn't see the road, there was no guardrail, you go off the road, you go off the mountain into the arms of Jesus, That, That was the situation. And so we were just kind of slowly kind of going up this mountain, uh, back to our cabin on our, on our way home. And I'll tell you what I knew in that moment. What I knew is that we were surrounded by incredible beauty of the Smoky Mountains. But I couldn't see any of it because of the fog. So I guess I would humbly challenge you to consider. Is a sense of entitlement clouding you or blocking you from engaging in and seeing the grace of God this week? seeing what he's already done, the beauty of this week, the majesty of this week, what Jesus has already accomplished in you and for you. I know it stings. Get me, believe me, I get this. I know it stings that he hasn't done this other thing that you want him to do. I get that that stings. 
And maybe it angers you. Maybe it frustrates you. But is a sense of entitlement that this is how I thought he'd use his power to deliver this thing, to do this thing, to bring about this thing. Is a sense of entitlement clouding you from seeing what he's already done and the good that he's already accomplished? I want to pray that that sense of fog would lift this week. Holy week. And as we consider Jesus working his way to the cross, we would be able to say, yeah, I'm frustrated over here, but I cannot deny how good he has been, how graceful he has been, how merciful he has been, and all that he's already accomplished. Now, there is another character in the story. There's another thief. And this thief is not angered by what Jesus has or hasn't done per se. The other thief is, first of all, humbled by his own sin. Remember what he said? Excuse me. We are getting what our deeds deserve. He's right about this, by the way. The the Bible is really clear on this, that the wages of sin is death. So he recognizes his own sin, which is really important. We talked about this a bunch, but our culture, we are getting increasingly good at being able to identify each other's sin. Right? It's very, very easy for us to see each other's sin. We are getting increasingly poor at being able to see our own. And this is disheartening because this is core to the gospel, that I see my sin, I recognize my sin, I don't celebrate my sin, I repent of my sin, and I ask Jesus to forgive my sin. But but it starts with being able to see our own sin. We never want to celebrate it, we want to see it, repent of it, and ask him to forgive it. And, And so we're less apt to see our own, to repent of our own, we are very apt to see other people. So he's humbled by his own sin, He's humbled by the innocence of Jesus. Remember what he said about Jesus? This man, (coughs) excuse me, this man has done nothing wrong. So he sees his own sin, says, I'm getting what my deeds deserve, the wages of sin is death, and he's humbled by the innocence of Jesus. This man has done nothing wrong. You know what the gospel does? You know what this week does for us? It removes this desperation that we sometimes have to make ourselves the hero of the story. And it allows us to be able to make Jesus the hero of the story. Matt Chandler talks about this in the story of David and Goliath, that uh, we tend to view David and Goliath in a very humanistic way, and we tend to put ourselves in the David category, and we say, man, who are the giants that I need to defeat? Right? And we tend to do this with a lot of different stories. But David and Goliath is a really good example of it. Who are the giants that I need to defeat? What are the giants that I need to defeat? And we think of ourselves as David. And Matt Chandler correctly points out, you know who we are in the story of David and Goliath? We're the brothers that are scared and hiding in the corner. You know who David is? Jesus is David. Jesus comes and he defeats the giant of death and disease and, 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 and sin, and he brings victory through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so one of the things the gospel does is I don't have to make myself the hero of the story. I can make Jesus the hero of the story. And we can worship him and honor him and follow him. And what this means for me is I don't have to be right about everything. I don't have to convince people of my way. I don't have to insist that people honor me. I can make my life, and my spiritual life in particular, all about honoring Jesus. So Jesus' power doesn't anger him. 
It drives him to him for, for grace. And this is the right response. He sees Jesus and his power, and it occurs to him, if he is this graceful, if he is this kind, if he is this powerful, then I need to come to him for life and mercy and joy and hope and peace. And this is the story of the two thieves of the cross. Now, the question becomes, how do we apply this story? Sometimes people use this story as almost as if to say, God doesn't really expect anything from us. No response is needed. Look at the thief on the cross. And the story, this story in particular, is debated a lot in theological circles because it would seem as if Jesus is showing grace to someone who has done almost nothing to deserve it. And to that, I would say yes and amen. And I would say that very statement identifies a problem in me. And maybe it identifies a problem in you. That the comment kind of demonstrates where we can get with Jesus, that we have convinced ourselves that our response to Jesus, to his lordship, to his grace, to his mercy, to his authority, that our response to Jesus makes us worthy and deserving of salvation. More on that in just a minute. But I want you to hear the exchange again, because the thief says, he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What an amazing promise for this thief on the cross. The promise is, just to be clear, at the time of your death, which is hours away, at the time of your death, you will be with me. Now, there are many indications about heaven all throughout the scriptures. There are choirs of angels for music lovers. There are promises of healing and restoration for those who suffer from disease. There is no more mourning for those who have had trials and difficulty. There are streets of gold and crystal seas for adventure lovers. And there are mansions for every believer for homebodies. But the promise to the thief on the cross is one that is an all play that I think we can all be encouraged by. Today, the moment you die, today you will be with me in paradise. What an act of grace. I don't have time to go into it a ton. This man was a scoundrel. He was a scoundrel. He was a sinner. He had done terrible things. And he turns to Jesus in this moment of great humility. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So here's what I want you to see first of all. It is untrue that the thief does almost nothing. That, that the thief doesn't do anything, I should say. The thief does respond. Now, he's not going to live a life of holiness into his 70s or 80s that his grandchildren and his children can see and admire. He's about to die. He's not going to be active in a local church and teach Sunday school for a bazillion years and earn a badge of honor from that church. Right? He's not going to be ultimately very generous with his time and his money. He's not going to have a lifetime to demonstrate these acts of incredible faith. But he does respond to Jesus in this moment. Let me show you how. We've already talked about it some. He recognizes his own sin. He recognizes the innocence of Jesus. He recognizes the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. 
And he seeks grace. And Jesus is faithful. Even in a situation like this, where a person is at the end of their life and they turn to him for grace, Jesus is faithful to bring grace. I think this is an important story for us in the realm of hope. That it is important for us to remember that God's grace through Jesus is bigger than we can imagine. It's greater than we can imagine. It's more robust than we can ever imagine. He is so graceful and so kind and so faithful. And often when we don't know for sure, and I've walked with a lot of you through situations like this, when we don't know for certain where a person stood with him, this is an important lesson to remember. That Jesus' grace is gigantic. It is big It is wonderful. It can be trusted. So trust his grace. Trust his judgment. And trust his ways. This is a great story for them. How is Jesus going to respond? He responds in grace. All right? That's the encouraging part of the message. Here's the second thing I would say to you. You are not the thief on the cross. I am not the thief on the cross. His response is obviously limited. He is about to die. But there is still a response. Even on his deathbed, there is a response. Our response here in this room today should be indicative of people that see the same things about Jesus that he saw. We see our sin. We see his innocence. We see his kingdom. We see his grace. We see those same things. And we respond accordingly as free people, not on a cross, living our lives today. So here's what I would, the gospel demands a response. So here's what I would ask you. How might he be calling you, since you and I are not the thief on the cross, how might he be calling you to respond? Maybe he's calling you to take the next spiritual step. And you're like, I need to start attending church more regularly. Or start attending a small group. Or reading my Bible. Maybe I need to be baptized in in the name of Jesus. Maybe I need to start being generous in some capacity. Maybe he's calling you to another spiritual step. Maybe he's calling you to confess a sin that has entangled you for quite some time. And you need help with it. Or you need accountability. You need some prayer. But this is the year that you're going to go after it. Maybe he's calling you to a step of faithfulness. A conversation that you have felt called to have. A mission trip you feel called to participate in. An invitation that you want to follow up on. Here's the mistake that we make that we want to avoid in this moment. Is sometimes the mistake that we make is our assurance in our salvation becomes our response. Huge mistake. Well, I've taught Sunday school for 40 years. Obviously, I'm under God's grace. I've faithfully given. I've attended church. I've done all of these things. I was baptized as a teenager at camp. On on and on and on it goes. And this assurance in me and my response to Jesus can lead to two places. It can lead to pride which is not a godly attribute at all, right? 
It can lead to pride that look at what I've done. Look at how good I've been. Do you know how long I put up with those middle schoolers? Yada, 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 right? It can become pride and look what I can do. Or more often, it becomes despair. It becomes despair and concern. Have I done enough? Have I responded enough? Have I been good enough? Now listen. Response to Jesus is a good thing. This story teaches us that. Response is a good thing. It is a commanded thing. And I hope that there is a response that you have to the grace and mercy and kindness of Jesus. You're like, yes, I need to be baptized. I need to start attending church. I need to get, he's calling me to these things. So I'm going to response to the grace of our Lord. But our assurance for our salvation is not in our response. Our assurance is in the grace of our Lord. Now, our response might be indicative to our family and our friends where where you feel more certain about a person's eternal destiny. That might be because you've seen them respond again and again and again to the grace. And you're like, man, the response is indicative that they put their hope and faith in Jesus. But our assurance is in our Savior, not the saved one. It's in our Savior. Our assurance is in his work and not ours. Our assurance is in his grace and not our effort. There's a clip uh, that's been going around the internet, and I'm sure that some of you have seen it, but I wanted to show it today. It's by a a pastor. His name is Alistair uh, Bragg, and and he is going to talk about this story in a way that I thought would be really helpful to us. So let's watch this clip. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, We've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him. How did that shake out for you? Because you were, you, were, you, were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You'd never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, uh, did, <laughs> excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? 
guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, I, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Now, now that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy, while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God that just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther says most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense that we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. As we get ready to enter into a time of communion, I think that's a good spot for us to land on. <coughs> the man on the middle cross said, I can come. And he commands you to respond. Don't, don't hear this as an anti-response sermon. No, respond. Follow him. But our confidence is in his grace. And our response is our response. And our response is good. But it's a response to his grace. It's a response to his holiness. It's a response to his kindness. It's a response to his lordship. Yes, we respond. But our confidence is in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. And I just pray right now as we <clears throat> get ready to receive communion, that we would just kind of bask in that grace about what Jesus has done and how he did it. And right now that as we're thinking about ways that we might respond to him, it's like, man, I do, I need to start attending a church or I need to pray or read my Bible or I really need to be baptized or whatever the case may be, that we would respond in the ways that you've commanded us and are calling us. But that our confidence wouldn't be in our response, in our work. Our confidence would be in yours. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to uh, receive communion together and just kind of bask in that grace. And at the same time, think about how God might you be calling me to respond to your grace and your goodness. They'll pass out the emblems, uh, the communion emblems, two cups stacked on top of each other. And just hold on to those and, and thank him for his grace. Thank him for his kindness. And then I'll come back up in just a few minutes and we'll receive it all together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we want to thank you for your grace. 
may we respond to you accordingly as free people, not people that are hanging on a cross near the end, but as free people, may we respond to you and may we do what you're calling us to do as an act of obedience that is based in love for you and a desire to follow you and a desire to see uh, your ways and your will enacted in our lives. Because you are not, as we're going to talk about on Easter Sunday, you are not just our Savior, you are our Lord. You are our saving Lord. And so we want to follow you completely and fully. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hey, go ahead and stand. I'm really glad that you were here. And uh, we're going to close with one last song. And uh, we'll, we'll see you uh, for Easter Sunday to celebrate uh, the resurrection of our King. God bless you guys. The Christ, the King.